Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. Ollie Mann here. On today's show, the BBC are at it again, slashing jobs, confirming intentions to close a channel and opening up more competition in radio. Will that be enough to appease their government overlords. Plus, I speak to comedy writer Larry Rickard about Yonderland, horrible histories and the new Tracy Ullman show. And we discuss news that Neil Wallace is cleared of conspiracy to hack phones, Channel 4 could move to the black country, and we offer to fix the BBC's new look, Wimbledon Today. That's all coming up on this week's media podcast. And with me, Today at the Hospital Club is Faraz Osman, Managing Director of TV Indie Lemonade Money. Faraz, you're just back from Glastonbury. I am still recovering, hence the voice. I'm a bit like, I need a, I need a good night's sleep is what I need. Oh, you're so wrecked, man. Oh, you've done the festival. Oh, no. It's just like, it's such a nightmare in my, my massive yurt. I was going to memory foam mattress. So right, so you were glamping, not camping. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a bit of glamping, yeah. Is, is it amazing? It's just exciting and something so British and so so cool. And it has ticks all the right boxes. And as if to underline the point that you weren't just an ordinary punter camping in a tent like everyone else, you also walked around photobombing the BBC's coverage with a giant flag bearing the name of your indie on it. Yes, it might be worth watching some BBC coverage and seeing if you can spot a big Lemonade Money logo. I thought it was cool, and then people started asking me about it, and then I realised I was effectively walking around Glastonbury with a massive business card. Yeah, not very Glasto. And also making his first return to the pod since episode number 23. Uh, I reckon about a 10-episode rotation is right for you, Leon. Uh, It is... (laughs) Uh, the MD of Talkback, Leon Wilson. Hi there. Hello, Ollie. Hello. Uh, hello. Uh, I understand you've been eating lobster in a field in Richmond. I wasn't personally eating lobster because I'm a vegetarian. Okay. But most of the whole of the media industry was yesterday at the house festival in Richmond. I was a guest of ITV and it is the most sort of awful place of conspicuous consumption but also brilliant because it's a lovely day out in the sun with lots of people you know and you spend the whole day half hating yourself but also half loving the fact that you're there. Um, what, what gossip but, did you learn? Uh, I, I, just, I can't can talk. I, can't, I really can't. I learned. Well, I saw one thing, but I cannot, literally, cannot talk about because I would never work in this industry yeah. again. And now you've got the name of that person flashing <laughs> in bright lights. Yes, in your head. Oh, oh yes, yeah. so I'm not going to say what I saw. Oh, okay. I'm really sorry. All I right. feel like I'm really letting everyone down. But I really can't. Was it Tony Hall walking around with a big BBC Three flag? <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that would have been amazing. Yeah. Um, I should also mention to you, on a slightly sad note, that since we last spoke, of course, never mind the Buzzcocks, one of the biggest shows you do, no longer with us, decommissioned. Yeah. Rip Buzzcocks. Yeah, was that a bit of a shock or not? Um, 
it wasn't a total shock by the end. We thought they would give it another series. They obviously, the BBC chose Rod. Uh, they wanted Rod to be the host of the, the, the series before last. This and is Gilbert, not Little. This is Rod Gilbert, sorry, viewers. Rod Gilbert. Yeah. And uh, we thought they probably, given they'd given him, they, they wanted to go with him, they would maybe give him a chance to build on that. They decided that they sort of had had enough, which, you know, it's a shame. But we've got lots of other things coming through. We've got uh, another series of Through the Keyhole we're doing at the moment. And we've got the Back to the Future tribute we're doing on the October 21st. Keith Levin's Back to the Future tribute. We've remade Back to the Future. And I've just been watching some of the edit this morning, and it is amazing. I was going to ask you about that, because people who aren't regular Keith Lemon fans might not know that there's a Back to the Future thread running through a lot of his work. Uh, yes. And over the next year, you've got the Back to the Future musical, haven't you? Yeah. You've got, uh, yeah. They're doing some yeah. sort of... They did the secret cinema thing last year. Yeah. I was wondering when you were going to hop on that gravy train. Oh, yeah, it goes out... It go, it, the program goes out on the day that Martin McFly goes to in the second film, in the future, that's 2015. <sighs> If only to be Lee Francis and have every one of your crazy ideas completely indulged like this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, uh, there's been a lot of announcements from the BBC this week. Uh, anyone might think there's some sort of big political negotiation coming up. Uh, but the story we're starting with is the BBC Trust's decision to close their youth channel, BBC Three. It means the corporation can move the brand online with occasional programming on BBC One and Two, saving 30 million quid in the process. Uh, Leon, do you think BBC Three is about to become the new iPlayer or the new BBC Switch? <laughs> oh God, this is such a hard question for me to answer. I think everyone agrees it's too early. I think everyone, I mean, even the BBC admit that it's sort of too, this has happened too early for them. Uh, that you know, I think it's been a huge mistake. It is a huge mistake. They have not communicated clearly the reasons why they want to close it. Uh, the fact that it's been waved through by the trust this week was is the least surprising thing about the whole thing. It was always going to happen. I think the thought that they were going to change their mind on this was just inconceivable. I think that. It will probably be a qualified success. There'll be one or two programmes that do punch through when it goes online. Like, People Just Do Nothing was a show that started online last year. And it's fantastic. It's got a huge sort of um, following now. And I think there'll be some programmes that do that. And, I, and But I think it will probably make it harder for some programmes to sort of get attention. And for us, the world that you move in, obviously, is also targeted mostly at the kind of BBC Three age demographic. And I guess most of the shows that you make are, you know, primarily thought of as something that could last online afterwards, even if not initially. Is it the right decision or is it the case that, yeah, there's a sizable minority of people that still don't have decent broadband connections and it is too soon? Yeah, I, I personally, I think it's utterly nonsense. and I can't believe this is actually happening. So the way that Lemonade Money operate at, at the current time, we have more shows that we do for online partners than we do for broadcast partners. So you could argue that this is a benefit to us as, as a company that have expertise in that space. But the way I look at it is that it's already a crowded market. And the idea that the BBC can just, you know, turn on BBC Three online and suddenly be able to be a massive success in there seems bonkers to me. The real thing and the real scandal for me is people have seemed to stop talking about the commissioning budget, which has been cut in half. So the actual figure that they're going to be spending on content for younger audiences is going to be much lower. I think if they decided and they turned around and said, look, we're going to experiment with seeing how we can get content out to audiences in a different way, but we're going to be as, as noisy and as strong with a big commissioning part of, I think it's 60 million at the moment, and we're going to take all of that and apply it to a new platform and see what happens, then I think it would be an interesting experiment. But that's not what they've decided here. This was originally started off as a cost-saving exercise. They've tried to claim that it's now about innovation and excitement and what young audiences want, which is all a nonsense. The reality is, is that television has an important canvas that young people are underserved in in an online space they're actually I'd argue overserved in and this just feels like it's completely skewed in the wrong way the, the real thing for me though is when it comes to the BBC Trust I mean obviously we've been talking about BBC Three for a long time when it comes to the BBC Trust they did this big public service value test a lot of people that came back to that said, no, we don't want BBC Three to move online. From what I heard, they also said they don't want children's BBC to, to have longer hours. And they've ignored all of that. 
what was the point in having that test? What was the point in me filling out that form when, resoundly, the vast majority of people said this was a bad idea and they've gone ahead and done it anyway? What does that say about what the trusts are doing and listening to the public? You talk, though, about it sort of suddenly moving online and actually one of the things the trust has said, in fairness to them, is there needs to be a gradual, well-managed transition Therefore, is this going to happen by 2016, which was the date we've been talking that about? That was really unclear in the announcement, I thought. It said, yeah, it, it will happen by the beginning of next year, and they certainly, they, there's, a, there's a chance they might run alongside each other. Go, well, which one is it? Is it going to be off-air in January, or is it going to be off-air when? I mean, it's kind of, it's really unsettling for the commissioners working there, everyone involved in the channel. And what do struggling. you put on the telly when you haven't got Family Guy anymore? <laughs> that, but seriously, yeah, what are they going to fill those hours with? I think with? they've got that till the end of this year. And then, yeah, if they're still on air next year, then I don't know what's going to fill up between sort of 10 o'clock and 12 o'clock each night. And and that's the key point. I mean, I don't know if Leon agrees with this, but f- from where I'm standing as, as running an indie, I'm confused about how do I pitch ideas to BBC Three. They've, they've, I really don't feel like they've cleared up that sense of they want TV half hours or they want online 15-minute shows or they want six-second vines or they want GIFs or, or what it is that we're actually meant to be sending well, there, across there, to there them. There is a plan. I went to the briefing two weeks ago. There is a sort of... They have set out their idea, the, the rough breakdown of how that will... They think that will work. At the time, that was all subject to trust approval. But it isn't particularly clear... It really it's quite hard to know how many series does that money equate to you know and I, I don't think they really know is the honest answer okay well if as last time when we were discussing bbc3 someone wants to dm me afterwards and say oh you're talking a load of bollocks because they work at bbc3 well then come on the show and tell us why That's uh, talk at BBC3. yeah <laughs> and then we'll find out um now still with skin in this game is john Soday and jimmy melville uh, you'll remember they proposed buying the channel from the bbc that's been rejected but the chiefs of avalon and hattrick are doubling down this is what they told broadcasts talking tv podcast last week what happens if the trust turn around and agree with this decision from the bbc well we keep going in fact we, we ramp it up yeah it, it's such an important thing it, it cannot happen so what does that involve well i think what you'll see is it'll be much noisier and much more pointed and aggressive in a the, good way the point is it's not just us now it, it, at the beginning, it, it seemed like it was just us. Sometimes the BBC liked to say it's just us, isn't. It's 800 people who are from stars to industry professionals and many, many others that all believe the same thing. There is no shortage of people that think the BBC is making a mistake here. Leon, what can these guys actually hope to achieve? While I'm very sympathetic with Jimmy and John's sort of, you know, wish to keep BBC Three online, I agree with it. I do think the way they've Not gone about online, on telly, on television, <laughs> sorry, yeah, the way they've probably gone about it hasn't been the best way of getting the industry behind them. The way that the initial headline being "We want to buy BBC Three is kind of if you're a competitor to Hattrick and, and um, Avalon, which we are, there's no incentive for me to get on board with that really because why? Why would I want to help out a competitor? Whereas actually, what they really were trying to say, I think, is we want to try and create a model like Channel Four. But what the headline was about them buying it, and I think that was kind of, you know, and there's not, they're not going to get a huge amount of sympathy because given their success. And I really admire them as TV producers, and I can only wish to sort of have companies as successful as theirs. But really, they're not going to get a huge amount of sympathy from the rest of the industry, I would say, uh, helping out multimillionaire sort of, t- you know, producers. Uh, whereas if they'd have come out with a model that was more like, we want to turn it into Channel 4 then I think actually people would have got on board with that. And they did actually have latterly change their stance towards that, but it was almost too late by then. And it also allowed the BBC to internally attack them. The B- There's a lot of people in the BBC didn't want BBC Three to close, but the moment they're being attacked by Jimmy and John, they all kind of closed ranks and went, well, we're going to have, have a go at them back. And they sort of saw it as a sort of a, a, a mission to sort of destroy the credibility of Jimmy and John's proposal. And actually, they, whereas originally, they were actually sympathetic towards their point of view. 
So good idea, bad approach, basically. Yes, I think so, yeah. Yeah. And Faraz, what about the spectrum of what was BBC Three on Freeview and on Sky and on Virgin? Because the Trust have also nixed the idea of BBC One Plus One, which was going to go in its place. I've got that in my notes that I was going to talk about. Okay, you and me are like thinking on the same, literally on the same iPhone page. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I want to know the, the same thing. Um, if, if you're not going to have that spectrum with BBC One Plus One, which incidentally confused me even more when this whole approach came about, because you're on, on the one hand saying that look at all these audiences moving online. They, we need to make sure that we have fully integrated services on, on iPlayer, but also we're going to launch a plus one service on terrestrial television because people don't watch television online. The whole thing seems really confused to me. So I actually think it's a good thing that, that that's been rejected because it bizarrely slows down the innovation online. But yeah, what happens to that spectrum now? You know, the whole point was let's cut BBC Three to save some money. They're going to do it using the technical services. Actually, they're not doing that because they're going to do BBC One Plus One. The spectrum is now there languishing. What happens to it? I've got an idea. Let's put on some content for young people and see what happens. OK, well, staying with the BBC, perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, because there are three massive stories this week, uh, announced by the Director General, Tony Hall, 1,000 cuts to BBC staff, reducing layers between the top and bottom of the organisation from 10 to seven. Uh, so if you work at the Beeb, then soon your bosses, 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 boss will be Tony Hall. Now that is streamlining for you. Uh, Faraz, the Guardian has called this a last-minute sacrifice to the gods, uh, referring to charter renewal. Uh, does that sound about right to you as an assessment? There's, there's always seems to be, when it comes up to charter renewal, there always seems to be suddenly all this middle management that can be got rid of. Like Every, every time this happens, that there's this like layer of middle management that wasn't there before. I, I will say that it's people's jobs are at risk and you know some of them are going to be our friends some of them are going to be people that we work with in the past some of them are going to be very, some very talented individuals and that's always quite difficult to stomach but there's a there is a sense that the BBC needs to get a little bit leaner um, and it needs to be efficient not just in in its staffing but also in the way that we can get answers and the way that we can get decisions made and if that means that we've got a few less hoops to jump through from from a decision maker's point of view that's probably going to be a good thing but at the same time, it does feel like we're going, we need to cut some staff, so let's do it. Um, let's say that we're going to do that first and then figure out who it's going to be later. And that yeah. always causes uncertainty. It's a bit like the discussion that people have politically about uh, austerity cuts that the Tories are making and saying, oh, it's ideological. I mean, Leon, this is kind of ideological, isn't it? Because Tony Hall said when he became Director General he was going to cut a load of middle management. And hey, presto, all tough times... I need to cut a load of middle management. Well, I thought the interesting thing that, that, that Tony Hall said, that part of the reason they had to cut jobs is because the licence fee take is dropping because of the change in uh, some people but not having a licence, paying a licence fee because they only view things online. And it made me think, that actually, shouldn't we be looking at having a licence fee for broadband instead? In the same way, when television came in, we had a licence fee for television, not radio, and now shouldn't we actually have a licence fee for broadband? Because if that's where everything's going ultimately, is that an easier way thing, you know, to sort of rather than people be able to get around the service we have a licence fee for broadband that seems to be that ultimately we end up there in maybe 10 years time I wholeheartedly endorse that that's the same thing that I've uh, that I've been thinking as well um, you should be paying for your licence fee for your broadband service provider it makes complete common sense that we stop taxing people for having a TV in their front room and we start letting broadband service providers collect the cash and redistribute that so you cut costs from that perspective and we start admitting to ourselves that, that TV isn't, isn't the only way that people access BBC services and again moreover when it comes back to the BBC Three point we give young people an, ex- an excuse and a reason to actually invest in the BBC which at the moment they don't have. Okay, one more BBC story before oh, we God. move on, uh, and that is about BBC Radio this time. Uh, RIG, the Radio Independence Group, have announced the 
BBC are close to a deal to release 60% of their radio output to competition. And now we understand that the big shows, things like uh, Daytime on Radio 1 and 2, literally the big show, uh, but also news programmes, long-running strands like Women's Hour, uh, they're going to stay in-house. But nonetheless, 60%, that's a sizeable chunk, isn't it? Last year, Indies won 22% of outputs. That's a massive, massive change, isn't it, Leon? Do do you think you're going to, as a basically TV indie but making a few radio shows on the side, going to be looking into... Doubling yeah, up on I think, that. Uh, well, it, it did pique my interest. We make one radio show for Radio 4 uh, called My Teenage Diary, and we tend to not pitch a lot of radio shows, but partly because the budgets are small, but also because there's limited opportunities, especially in comedy, because so, the BBC got still got a very strong in-house comedy team making a lot of good comedy, not a lot of not-so-good comedy. I think, actually, it's an opportunity for a lot of uh, television companies, like ourselves, who used to make radio. We used to make a lot of radio uh, talk back, back in the day, like, you know, um, day-to-day and sort of all partridge and things like that, to, to get back into the that and it's a good way and with BBC3 closing less opportunities for new comedians it's definitely something we'll be looking at sort of pitch in for more comedy shows on Radio 4 except the difference for us I guess is if you're a TV indie then you can make stuff for the BBC but you can also make stuff for Channel 4 and Sky and whoever if you're a radio indie I mean really commercial radio takes hardly any uh, independent commission. So then your sole supplier is the BBC. It's, it's not quite the same as telly. Yeah, it's it's a little bit more, I would argue, a little bit more complicated than the way the TV model is set up. I, I started in radio, actually, and I, when I started in radio, it was when the walk first opened up. So people were starting talk, talking about how we can get more hours from independent producers. And, and the challenge always seemed to be that, particularly with the work I was doing around Radio 1, was they have their studios. So you would end up having independent production companies go into BBC studios and make the show. So actually, I didn't know how much savings were made as a result. There, there was a different tone of voice, which is always really important. But when it comes to kind of building a business around that model where you have to go and broadcast from Radio 1 Towers or Radio 2 Towers, you, you end up not having that much benefit as a result of being a production company because you can't get those drawdowns on studios and, and equipment and all of that sort of space. So it is, it is a little bit more complicated technically to, to make this work, but I think that, as Leon says, that having a, having a real flag in the sand and saying that this is going to be a big boost in this space piques the interest of, of people like me who run a company that predominantly does music stuff and says, well, actually, maybe there's an opportunity here for us to see what our creativity looks like on, on audio. And should it be applied to the long-running shows? I mean, Leon, you make a lot of panel shows. If the news quiz became available to bid oh, on. I'd love to pitch the news quiz. What would a talkback news quiz sound like versus a BBC one? <laughs> It'd be starring Rod Gilbert. Um, <laughs> uh, no, uh, yeah, I'd love to. I think that's... I do... I mean, I remember, is it Tony Ball, this head of Sky, 10 years ago, saying that BBC shows should be put out um, to sort of license... Yeah, other companies could make them when they've been running for more than five years. At the time, I thought it was crazy. Now, I actually think there's, there is... There's, a, there's, there's something in that. I do think there's something in the news quiz. It'd be good, quite interesting to see what another independent company would make of the news quiz. Um, you know, even if it's just for a year and they could sort of, you know, if they didn't do a very good job, it goes somewhere else. Oh, Radio 4 listeners like nothing if they don't like an experimental listen with, with <laughs> <Yeah>. some <laughs> of their favourite shows. <laughs> uh, well, uh, more stories in a moment, but first, the Sky One series Yonderland returns later this month. It's made by many of the same team as Make Horrible Histories, the family show uh, that managed to create a balance of children's entertainment uh, and jokes for the mums and dads as well. This season of Yonderland, though, promises to be a little darker, uh, as the head writer Larry Rickard explains. The rule we tend to give ourselves is any joke has to not bring you any information which is offensive. So you can look at a joke and read it one way if you're an audience of a certain age with a certain amount of knowledge and savvy. 
or you can look at that as a young audience with you know less knowledge on certain subjects and read it completely innocently and so you only bring to it what you bring to it. We're never trying to be offensive. Down. Imperatrix is here. She's 50 foot tall with guns for thumbs. No, she's not. She's like my height with thumbs for thumbs. You've never actually seen her, have you? And I hope I never do. I heard if you look straight at her, you turn into socks. <gasps> well, that's not how I want to go. That's why I've lodged this suicide pill between the wisdom tooth and... Ooh, where's it gone? Oh, no. Uh, the perception will be with Sky comes buckets of cash. It looks like it costs quite a lot of money to make, but you were about to tell me it was made on a shoestring and you'd like more money. No, I mean, yeah, there's not going to be anyone out there making a television show who say, you know what, we've got all the money we need. I imagine it costs slightly more than a sitcom, but considerably less than it looks like, frankly. You know, we've been very lucky on both series with great DOPs. We've got Ricky Ayres, who designed the first series, and Lucy Spink, who was our designer on this series, who found a whole new sort of uh, way of approaching it, are incredible and just find ways of doing something with, you know, a lot of the time with with nothing. We've got, there's a set in this series, which is one of my favourite. I think it looks wonderful on screen. And it's this factory that, when you actually examine it, is 90% cardboard boxes. And it just looks wonderful. It's such a large, immersive set as well. And does it have an international audience? Because it strikes me as something Yonderland that fits into that sort of Doctor Who template in a way of British fantasy. If you went to Comic Con, would people know who you were yet? It's a good question. I don't know. I mean, it certainly it does play in various other territories. And I know it plays in Australia and, and, and places like that. Humor is one of those things that famously doesn't always travel well. But then having said that, you know, one of one of the great inspirations for it was is things like Labyrinth and, and a lot of the Henson shows, which crossed over in that obviously, you know, the, you know Jim Henson's American and it's, that's what the heritage was, but they were all made over here and a lot of the writers and crew were, were English. So I don't know. I think there's the potential there. Now, actually, talking about transatlantic uh, productions, mm. we're actually sitting in your trailer on the set of the Tracy Ullman show at yes. the moment, which is being made for the UK. Yeah. It's a bit of a weird thing, isn't it? Because she's a massive star and she's a British star. Mm. Uh, and yet, you know, being honest, most of her success for the last two decades has been in America. Most people in Britain wouldn't recognise her if she walked past them. Uh, how do you think it's going to go down? I think, I mean, so far, having worked, it's been lucky enough to be in so many of the writing rooms and rehearsals. It doesn't phase me at all because the second that you see Tracy performing, the confidence, but also the incredible combination of skills when it goes, oh, we're going to do a dance number here. She dances. Oh, this is going to be a song. And she sings a song. Not singing a song the way that I would sing a song, like, you know, say in, in, in Horrible Histories or, or Yonderland, but just the song, the way a singer would do it and, the, you know, the character observation and the timing. It's all just there. I think, you know, the BBC probably feel the same way about it as I do in that, thank God we finally wrestled her back to these shores, you know. In the event of public unrest, the procedure is quite clear. We must take off our robes. No. We must implement emergency protocol seven. No, completely lost all your marbles. No, 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 he's right. If we do not act, we ourselves may be in danger. We must immediately start acting. Very well. Implement Protocol 7. So, in a sense, there's no kind of resentment from you that you came through children's. That wasn't fighting because you couldn't get commissioned elsewhere. That was a a legitimate way and relatively easy? Um, No, I mean, speaking personally, not at all. It was, it meant... In some ways, it worked for us. It meant that we could be a complete surprise. There was no armchair critics going, well, let's see what this comedy is then. 
in the years leading up to that, I'd been involved either directly or tangentially on a, a number of speculative comedy projects that were set in the past. And the accepted wisdom had become, they're too expensive, you can't do those anymore. And I think well, one thing that Horrible Histories did do was go, there's a way of doing it on what are modest budgets. You know, that was a, a children's BBC budget. Very, very proud of what we've done with Yonderland. We've got, you know, a, a, a film coming out later in the year. It's it's led on to a number of really wonderful things. So, uh, no, I'm, I'm very, very glad it all happened as it did. And the film is a Horrible History style film about William Shakespeare. So more dicking around in costumes, but with a higher budget. Well, it's quite, it's quite different in that it's not, um, you know, the great thing about the show is the fact that they're factually accurate, but factual stories, you know, as you'll often see when a film comes out that says based on a true story, the first thing that happens is a 10 articles going, it's all lies, that didn't happen. You know, in our version of, of uh, events, Bill gets involved, uh, Bill Shakespeare gets involved in a plot to kill the Queen. I'm pretty certain that didn't happen. Oh, you can't be sure. <laughs> we don't, nobody that's, knows yeah, for that's sure. that's the joy of Shakespeare. But um, yeah, <laughs> our, um, exactly, it's all open. You know, as, and it's kind of what Shakespeare did as well. You know, he took these, he took history books. We were lucky enough to, to you know, directly compare up at the Shakespeare Trust in Stratford uh, some of the history books that he used for reference and then his texts from the plays. And you can see he's gone, well, I'll take that, but I'm just going to tweak that and put a few little uh, whistles and bells on there. And to a degree, you know, we're sort of taking a lead from him and going, we don't know exactly what happened in that history so here's our spin on it i think the point at which anyone compares themselves to shakespeare is probably a good point to have an interview <laughs> i never said that i never said that larry rickard yonderland begins its second series on sky one on monday the 13th of july at 8 p.m Okay, some news in brief now with Leon and Faraz. First of all, the ex-deputy editor of the News of the World, Neil Wallace, has been cleared by a court of conspiracy to hack phones. Wallace was first arrested in 2011, then the CPA. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
has dropped the case, only to pick it up again after the Coulson and Brooks trials. He'd previously spoken out about police powers to endlessly extend his and others' bails. Uh, For as an innocent man, we now know, with no chance of recouping his legal fees, uh, not a great use of the justice system. Well, it's it's a really tricky and complicated case, and I I think that the CPS aren't aren't looking to pull any vendettas. That's not really their space. I think this is a case of there was some evidence that they needed to investigate. They've investigated it. The justice system has has prevailed, and it has found them innocent, and I think that that's what we have to accept. It's going to be life-changing, though, and it always is for these for these sort of cases. I mean, a- away from, from him as an individual and, and this, this particular case, it, it does make things very interesting when it comes to tabloid newspapers because, let's be honest, they a lot of the time splash things on front pages that turn out not to be quite true and, and there's not much recourse that's happened to those people that are victims of those stories. And, and here we have a, a scenario where it's, it's almost like the reverse. And the whole thing around this case and, and the phone hacking story demonstrates that you know, people's lives are at risk here. And uh, in, in this instance, it's a reporter that's had, that has, as, he, as he says, has had his life ruined. But there's also lots of other people that have had their life ruined by people having their phones hacked. And, and that has happened. We know that's happened. And, um, and I think it's right that it was investigated properly. OK, sticking with the tabloids, Trinity Mirror are looking to purchase the Daily and Sunday Express titles from Dickie Desmond, according to Mark Sweeney. At The Guardian, they've been locked in talks since at least March. Apparently Richard Desmond, perhaps unsurprisingly, wants the maximum price. I think it's amazing the Mirror, basically the Mirror buying the Express. The Express are the only paper in favour of UKIP. And they're being bought by a company that is, you know, is very left wing. And I just think that's the sort of I don't. What will happen to the Express? Is it? Are they going to have to stop doing stories about Diana and sort of heat waves and immigrants, or will it be this? Will, will they leave it alone? I'd, if it does happen, it'd be really interesting to see what happens to the Daily Express. I think whether it will keep its agenda or whether they'll have to move to the left. No, I think the answer is they will leave it alone because the, the whole point so, is as, as a business model, they'll then have yeah. a more holistic thing. They'll have left wing. Working-class readers and right-wing working-class readers. tend to have major news organisations owning both left and right-wing sort of out, but their sort of titles. I mean, I'm sure there are other examples. They don't tend... I just can't see how that works on a long-term scale. I just can't, you know... At some point, why they've got to come together, haven't they? I mean, you get publishers in magazines who are quite hands-off, don't you? Felix Dennis yeah, always yes, used to say, true. well, you know, it's not up to me what the content of the magazines is. But, yeah, you're, you're right with those kind of titles that historically have had entrepreneurial influence, I guess. Yeah. And, and certainly Richard Desmond, we know, is a donor to UKIP. You wonder if that's not there, whether the readers, uh, you know, will be getting the red meat that they want. Well, but apparently he, the reason they don't, they sort of, they look, listen to their readership. They ask their readership what, 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 who they want, who they were interested in, and they, they said UKIP, so they back them because of that. So it, it does, you know, even when Richard Desmond's not there, are they still going to support UKIP? And may, are they going to not support UKIP and potentially alienate their readership? I think that as we approach this whole European referendum, that's when it's going to get particularly interesting. As we know, during elections, newspapers have a lot of influence, and and the Daily Express seems to be the, the paper that's going to be voting yes or no. I'm, quite, I'm not quite sure what the question is. I keep forgetting, but I think it's, I think it's no. So I think that as a paper, they're saying no, but, but as a, my understanding is that as a proprietary, it makes sense for them to be in Europe. So, so as a business, they're saying this is a good thing, and I imagine that Daily Mirror will be very much saying, yes, we should be staying in Europe. So that where that leaves the, the politics of the paper, it is going to be fascinating. Why is no one asking what's going to happen to the Daily Star Sunday? I'm very worried. Does it exist? <laughs> well, so, so, admit, so but they're not buying that either. So that, that will stay. The, the Daily Star will stay with Desmond. Well, we don't not know. Selling we that. Don't, yes, the rumour appears to be they only want the Daily and the Sunday Express. 
It's odd, isn't it? But I yeah. guess they don't really wear the star. There's no point having the star and the mirror. Is two, there, two failing tabloids. It's, it's, just too it's much li- literally like going to a newsagent going, I'll go, I'll have that one and that one and that one today. <laughs> I, just, I just wonder if Richard Desmond would ever find it possible to strip any more value out of the Daily Star. I mean, what would be left? If he wanted to sell it in the future, we, we'd probably be able to buy it together if we all clubbed up. Well, presumably the Daily Star just don't just do stories about Big Brother anymore because since they, he sold five to Viacom, I haven't seen a Daily Star. It used to just be wall-to-wall Big Brother coverage, but I don't know what's in there since they've sold Channel 5 I haven't looked in the last two years I think there's more sophisticated news agenda it's, it's people that were <laughs> in Big Brother with their clothes on. oh they're yeah. not doing stories about ISIS or anything like that okay, <laughs> not to my knowledge now before we leave the press a bonus question the Sun and the Guardian are running summer schools for kids this year according to the Press Gazette though how much do these summer schools cost to attend the Guardian's one costs £599 correct and the Sun's one is free correct but they're quite different schemes Really, one the Suns one is sort of a competition, a PR exercise where people have to write articles, and the best ones get the chance to go to their summer school free of charge. And the Guardian's one is clearly sort of a money-making exercise. In the Guardian, I don't know how much money they will make from it, but it's a thing where if you pay the money, you will get to go, as long as this place is still left. So they're quite different things, and it sort of feels a bit unfair to compare them. Well, does it though? Because the Guardian's funded by the Scott Trust, so they don't have to make a profit yeah, but, at all. And the Guardian is the one that's supposed to be standing making, up for people from working-class backgrounds. The Guardian making huge losses and the auto trader money will run out in the end so they have to find other ways of making money and one of the ways of making it is through the Guardian Club and they do lots of these events throughout the year where you can go along and listen to Guardian journalists talk for a couple of hours and pay lots of money for the privilege apparently there's an excellent Guardian Masterclass about podcasting coming up next <laughs> who's running that? I've, I don't know I've, I've heard about it now uh, the BBC <laughs> them again uh, have lost control of the rights for the Olympics from 2022 I think in another week this would be our big story but there's so much else going on at the BBC. It's a huge story. It's a huge story. Uh, Discovery uh, now own the rights. They made a pan-European bid. The deal means that the Eurosport owner will have first dibs on hosting coverage, but may decide to license it to a national broadcaster. It is a huge story, Leon, but it doesn't mean the Olympics won't be on British telly anymore, does it? On free-to-air telly. Well, it, they, it has to be. It's a crown jewel, isn't it? Yeah. And it has to be free-to-air, but then I don't understand. You, I don't have Eurosport. It's not part of the free view spectrum, is it? So, I don't know whether you, do you have to pay to get Eurosport, or is it part of a package at the moment on Sky? I don't I, have Sky. I'm I think that it is part of the free view spectrum. We're all looking at each other, kind of going, <laughs> we probably well, it's no, this, it definitely but, but isn't on UView. Well, that's it's the not thing there. about the Eurosport, that it's one of those channels you keep stumbling <laughs> yeah. upon in, in hotel rooms and kind of going, yeah. oh. Yeah, Snow- some- snowboarding. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, I quite like that. But it's, I think it's a, it's a massive deal for Discovery. I mean, you know, kudos to them for actually making this happen. And actually for the Olympic Committee, it does kind of make sense to do these big deals across across massive territories rather than going to individual, individual countries. What, what I haven't there. seen or hasn't been clear is did the, what the BBC, did the BBC even bid? It just said that Eurosport got it. I'd not seen what the BBC did. Did they even enter the bidding process well, or the, did they the get outbid? How much did they bid? Even if they did or didn't, the question kind of is, is should they? I mean, it's the same as, as with the massive Premier League games, isn't it? Once it gets to such a lot of money, is it in the public interest anymore to bid that kind of money for this sort of event? And then, I think so. If you want to convince people that they, it's £143 a year is good value, then things like that really help. You know, I mean, having the Olympics is kind of a big thing. Yeah, it goes without saying. This, this is exactly what the BBC is for. And, you know, it is a shame, as we've seen through what's happened with FIFA in, in recent times, that it's such a yeah, I'm not not by any way means suggesting that the IOC are in, in in the same boat, but there are some you know when you have these massive sporting competitions, it's there are a lot there's a lot of money swirling, swirling around, but it engages your audiences on such a huge scale and in a way that only broadcasting can do. It's fundamentally important that the BBC are import, a part of that story, particularly when it comes to international competitions like this. But I I think that. I, without knowing too much about it, because this isn't a world that I'm 
completely au fait with, it sounds to me like the, the IOC have gone into particular con- uh, continents and gone, right, let's sort out Europe first before they've gone to individual countries and looked at licensing there. So if Discovery are now going to handle how the licensing gets done across individual countries, then, then that makes the IOC's life a little bit easier. It means that Discovery can get more value out of the contract. And, and hopefully, if all goes according to plan, we'll still get to see some amazing coverage from the BBC as part of the Olympics because let's be, let's be clear about this and let's be honest about it. The BBC blow everyone else out of the water when it comes to coverage of this type. Yeah, and Discovery might sub-license it to the BBC, so it might end up all on the BBC anyway, or they might create a new channel. Probably a higher price than if the BBC be allowed to negotiate directly with the IOC. Yeah, and without owning the rights, the BBC couldn't do what they did last time, which was the 24 channels or whatever it was of, you know, Taekwondo and whatever. That'll be be gone. Which is a shame, isn't it, for the viewer, however this goes, however good the Discovery coverage is. We don't don't necessarily know that's that's true. I mean, there's been some comparisons made with what Sky and, and F1 have done and sharing that coverage with the BBC the, the reality is, is that having those 24 channels is amazing but really the vast majority of the audience watches 100 metres final and that's the thing that you need to protect before you start worrying about all the other little bits and pieces after that if those, those 24 channels was my understanding a partnership with Sky so if that partnership goes and becomes a partnership with Discovery you'll still get to see that content that's all the audience cares about I think that the question is, as Leon said is you know, this is a crown jewel situation and, and we need to start defining what that actually means, particularly as the BBC, as as we've gone throughout this podcast, are in a, in a position of, of trying to figure out what their character is and how they speak to their audience. Yeah. The major events, though, will be broadcast. They have to be, as you say. They have to as be broadcast on free to air. live archery, You're I don't st- care. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that counts. <laughs> oh, I'm not sure God. that is the 100 metre <laughs> men's final. Right, shall we talk about Channel 4? Uh, first of all, Ofcom, they've recommended that Channel 4 be handed better EPG slots for its digital stations to reflect its status as a public service broadcaster. Uh, Leon, could you imagine E4 getting the BBC3 slot? That could I, ruffle some feathers, didn't I it? I quite like that. I just, we made a program. We make a program for E4, uh, a program called Virtually Famous. And it, when, it, when it went out last year, I was kind of shocked. The first night it went out, I went flicked onto E4, and I was really quite shocked by how low down the EPG it was. I was. I thought in my head it was like 13, 14. I think it was in the 30s. Um, and I did remember thinking, oh God, would I normally go this far? Down? I think it'd been a while since I watched E4. Obviously, if anyone from Channel 4 is listening to this, then I'm apologising for, for not having watched E4 in the previous couple of years but I was really shocked by how low down it was so I think it would be good it is a public service channel and it, sh- it does pro- therefore probably make sense to give it weight to move further up the EPG Does it need a helping hand though for Raz? I mean it's a public service channel technically but a lot of the kind of content they show is being shown by other channels that well, the public enjoy I'm not entirely sure it is a public service channel I probably should know this having worked at, at, at Channel 4 but I'm, my understanding is, is a, Channel 4 as a main channel is a public service broadcaster and E4 more for Film 4 um, for Music all of those other sub-brands, they're all part of the commercial output of, of Channel 4, and I don't believe that they're governed by the same rules of public service broadcasting as, as the main channel is. But with, so with that in mind, I think having more public value tests put against those channels, particularly considering E4 attracts such a young audience, um, and, and actually if you look at the schedules and see what they're broadcasting, it's made in Chelsea, and you know, when from a diversity point of view, it's the Big Bang Theory, which has one Asian character which I would argue is pretty stereotypical and that's, that's pretty much their diverse representation on that channel um, uh, you know it's, it's great to see that we're going to have more of a, a push to get better representation of British audiences across those channels if this indeed does go ahead and if that does happen then I think absolutely they should be rewarded with better EPG slots and I think that will be good for the whole broadcasting sector again particularly when we're talking about what's going on with young audiences on television at the moment. Yeah they shouldn't bring back more 4 news though because that was dry my god uh, also this week the Telegraph's suggested Channel 4 may move their London headquarters from Horse Ferry Road 
to Birmingham. Uh, their HQ is reported to be worth 85 million quid. There's two things going on there, isn't there? There's, there's Selby HQ, which I yeah. suppose you can understand since they get some government support, uh, and then there's moving to Birmingham. But selling the HQ is just is never it's never a good idea. It's just a short term fix to plug a hole, and the cost of moving is always more than anyone ever thinks. And you speak as someone whose talkback has moved recently yeah, from their very nice yeah, HQ. Yeah, so we, we talkback sold one of their buildings two years ago, and and uh, yeah, they made some money from it. Uh, but then the cost of the move actually ended up taking a lot of that money away. So it, it was kind of a not a, well, I would argue, although I'm very happy in my current office, uh, it wasn't necessarily the best move at the time. Uh, also, I, someone I've been into Channel Four twice this week for meetings. You know. I, the idea of having to go up to Birmingham for those two times would just be a huge amount of time. But that's uh, the point, isn't it? They'd why say, wouldn't be doing it? They'd be someone else getting well, exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. They'd yeah. say a Birmingham indie would be getting that work and that would be a good thing for regionalisation, just like moving the BBC to Salford. So I, I worked in Birmingham and I worked at BBC Birmingham before uh, when, when they made the move from Pebble Mill to Mailbox and, and now it's a bit of a, a ghost town. And I think this has been well documented that, that Birmingham have, have been hit quite hard by what's happened in, in Salford and, and the BBC in particular have, have done have had to make some, some strides recently to to correct that um, I think Birmingham is a really interesting city I think it's you know I, I really enjoyed my time up there but I think the reality of, of Channel 4 considering it's 100% commissioned and they do actually do quite a good job of, of finding production partners outside of London the idea that we need to move that that building up to, to Birmingham I, I'm not sure how much value that would necessarily have um, I think that Channel 4 have a, a regional office in Glasgow. They've got quite good regional teams that go out and, and do a really good job of speaking to people across the country. Having an actual building in a particular place, uh, it's like, like Leon says, it's, it's going to be incredibly expensive to do, and I'm not sure it's going to have a ma- that much benefit. This is, a, this is a great headline, but I think the reality of it, I think everybody knows that it's not probably going to happen. Well, one media fixture which is definitely not going anywhere is, of course, our media quiz. Uh, This week, it is entitled Fix That Format. Uh, There have been plenty of dodgy reboots and cack-handed launches over the years, but of our panel, Leon and Faraz, who can come up with the quickest and cheapest fix? Right, my decisions are final. Buzz in with your names, Leon or Faraz. Uh, the winner receives a Daily Express front page about an extreme heat wave. The loser gets a stopped clock. They both have to be right occasionally. The watch is probably more reliable. Uh, here is format one. Wimbledon today. Leon. Leon, you get to go first. How would you fix that format for me? Simplest thing ever, just go back to the way it was for the last 15 years. <laughs> so, John Inverdale presenting, so long as he doesn't Barker, say anything um, about rose-tinted glasses. Yeah, Sue Barker or Inverdale sat behind a desk yeah. with Tim Hemmen or John McEnroe showing lots and lots of clips from the day's tennis, a little bit of analysis, and that's it. It okay. wasn't broken. I think it's, maybe, it's good that they tried, but what, the good thing that they have come out with in the last day is they've said they are going to try and change it. I think there's no harm in admitting, like, admitting a mistake, which I think it was a mistake to change it so much. It, it's pretty ghastly. Uh, and they've said they're going to try and change it back. So it can get Claire Balding behind a desk tonight, and, I think, and everyone will just forget about it. The, the thing to do is to literally just go back the way it was and from tonight. It will take no time at all. Okay. There's no shame in it. Not, not a particularly radical solution from Leon, but OK. <laughs> uh, Faraz, how would you fix the format of Wimbledon today? I think I'd get some boxing promoters in and go, go down the Mayweather-Pacquiao route. I think we, we needed like, big flashing spotlights. We need tail of the tapes. We need people shouting abuse to each other before the matches when they got onto centre court and uh, get some proper Monday night football ideas on the go. I'm admiring your showbiz chutzpah, but I, I have to say, I think in terms of, you know, just I, I'm, I'm judging this on, the, on behalf of the licence fee payer here. I, I think Leon's probably won that round in terms of getting it back to how it was in the first place. Uh, here's format number two, The X Factor. Buzz in if you'd like to go first. Faraz. Faraz. So I, I've, I actually have a genuine 
genuine thoughts about this, and I'm not going to make jokes about what I did previously. I think the X Factor's in trouble because people don't believe winning the X Factor means anything anymore. So we actually have to change the prize. And I think that people that, so whoever wins the X Factor should get two things. One, they should win the house. Forget the hotel, they should go back to everybody living in the same house. If you win the X Factor, you win that house on Millionaire's Row. And secondly, you win a celebrity lifestyle straight away. So from the day that you win X Factor, you become a celebrity. And they do that by sending them onto red carpets. They do that by giving them a record contract where they get to sing alongside Nicole Scherzinger straight away um, and you turn them into an overnight celebrity straight away. You're winning that lifestyle um, and let's get the prize back involved again. How would everyone else feel on Millionaire's Row if you were living between Brookstein and Cardle there in the future? (laughs) Well, Matt Cardle could do the decorating for you. (laughs) Uh, Leon, uh, would you care to offer your solution to fix the X Factor, a a sister programme of your production company? Yeah, I work for the company that that make X Factor uh, and actually I think a lot of the ideas, I'm not just saying, a lot of the ideas they've got planned for the next series are really exciting. So let's talk, Extra Factor I noticed is Melvin and Rochelle hosting. Yeah, Melvin and Rochelle. That seems quite good. Yeah, I think they're, they're fantastic. Got very good chemistry. Grimmy on the main panel, though. Not sure Grimmie, about that. The, the key to Grimmy is let him be himself. He is very funny and charming and quick-witted. So you're a fan of that? I love Grimmy. What would you? Uh, fix? But I think he's quite divisive. Some people don't like him. They think he's a bit North London, a bit media. And I think they just they just need to spend a bit of time with him on screen and not try and turn Grimmy into the kind of person who'll say this is. You know, you've got to let Grimmy be funny and don't try and make him be too serious because if he's trying to be too serious, I think he will come across possibly as insincere. They just need to let Grimmy be Grimmy. I heard a rumour, though, that, that Louis indexed the best from, from everyone when they did audience testing around ITV audiences, and actually Louis was the one that people tuned in to watch, and actually losing him means that there's a real proper big risk for, for the production company to see if they can it's, actually it's keep that audience. It is a big risk, losing Louis. He's been there since the start, so I, it will be interesting to see how they manage to cope without Louis, because Louis was also a great whipping boy. Whenever there was things not, it was getting a bit boring, have a go at Louis, get, every, get everyone excited. That was the strategy, the X Factor. They're not going to have that this time round. No one is going to say you look like a young Lenny Henry this year, which I think <laughs> No, no. <laughs> and they've got some really interesting things coming up I can't say around about the scheduling the show obviously the Rugby World Cup's on in September mm-hmm. so that's having to change the scheduling and the ideas they've got in place sort of these interesting live things they're doing and sort of changing the scheduling are really kind of exciting so okay. it'll all be announced half time, it's half time show isn't it it's a, it's a rugby final half time <laughs> yeah, show yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, for understandable reasons Leon you were being diplomatic there but I'm afraid uh, your solution of for a second time running so don't change it much is not going to cuss <laughs> yeah. it uh, for as you have won that round uh, so uh, this is the decider god it's almost as if it's convoluted in some way uh, here's the third format i want you to fix for me tfi friday leon leon don't bring it back as an eight-week run would be my advice why because i think that it worked really well as a one-off they should have done one per year and kept it going long and kept the specialness in it also coming back over eight episodes inevitably the ratings will dip over that period because mm. things just do and it'll begin, I think there's a chance it might be seen as a sort of a mistake to bring it back it's also going to have much stronger competition in, in the autumn up against If I Got News For You on a Friday night and uh, other programmes like that where it had, a good, it had a good open goal when it was on a couple of weeks ago and it will find it a little bit harder to keep the ratings up and I just think it will spoil what was a really nice re- reboot a couple of weeks ago and I just think yeah keep it as once a year that would be my advice. Okay. Actually, I'm, I'm already slightly persuaded by that because I think an annual 90s nostalgia thing I'd go in for, but I'm not going to tune in for all eight weeks either. But Faraz, how would you fix TFI Friday? I wouldn't fix it. I'd get rid of it. I, th- I think that it's a bad idea that they're bringing it back. I think if you actually look at the show, it started off really well and we were all excited it was back and we've been, we're 15 minutes gone. It was like, oh, okay, this is just clips of, of old TFI Friday. And then you got to the end of the show when suddenly you had this extended interview with Lewis Hamilton, which was yeah, like pulling was teeth. Yeah. And you're like, what, what is going on here? And if that's their new 
content that they've got that demonstrates to you that actually when you get nostalgia out of the way, it's actually quite a dated format. I think what's really disappointed for, you know, being completely selfish about it, what's really disappointed for companies like myself is that we would love to have an opportunity to do a proper anarchic entertainment and music show where we could get young people involved, try some different ideas out and, and really push the boat out and, and to borrow one of Channel 4's own words, take some risks along the way. I don't think that that doing a risky show from 20 years ago rehashing that and doing episode I don't think that is risky I think that's as safe as you can get it and I think it's a real shame that that is now going to be the key entertainment show on Channel 4 Okay a valiant effort and my head is with you but my heart Leon I'm afraid is with you on that I would like to see TFI Friday once a year uh, so you've won the quiz congratulations I'm very happy uh, You can choose whether you want to be referred to from now on as ugly bloke or fat lookalike <laughs> Both <laughs> my, my, my instance. Do you know who you're a fat lookalike for? <laughs> Uh, Jonah Hill well, I'm a slightly Jonah, yes, you are as, a bit. Fa- as fat a lookalike and I'm kind of fat lookalike for Seth Rogen so <laughs> yeah, the two of us yeah, could yeah. make a, make amends uh, that's it for today thank you very much to Faraz Osman and Leon Wilson you can find all of our previous instalments and get new ones downloaded automatically straight to your phone just head to themediapodcast.com today's show is dedicated to Simon Colum a musician and accompanist for The X Factor I'm sure he'll have appreciated your support Leon uh, if you would like to support our show keep these episodes coming thick and fast and today we're certainly thick uh, you can get a whole load of praise for me and the team by going to themediapodcast.com slash dedicate uh, I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill The Media Podcast is a PPM production until next time bye bye Small details are big surfaces tight corners are odd shapes Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.